0: Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. At the start of 2020, just months before the Canada Student Services Grant or the CSSG controversy dominated headlines, we was riding high, gearing up to celebrate its 25th anniversary and planning for the next 25 years. But with a global pandemic declared in March, the organization had to make some quick, and difficult decisions to ensure long-term sustainability. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the truth behind those decisions and how they set up the organization for long-term stability. Bad Omens as the first cases of COVID began to appear outside China in January 2020, Craig Hilberger received ominous advice from eBay's founding president, Jeff Skoll, a longtime mentor. Like Craig and his older brother, Mark, Skoll grew up in Thornhill, Ontario, a suburban community just outside Toronto. He became a wildly successful social entrepreneur and something of an expert on pandemics. In 2011, Skoll's film studio, Participant Media, released the Steven Soderbergh movie, Contagion, an eerily accurate picture of what a global pandemic would look like. After the film's release, Skoll poured millions into pandemic research and prevention and funded the Launch of Ending Pandemics, a nonprofit dedicated to preparing countries to better track and manage disease spread. During a hike with Craig in California in early January, Skoll predicted that COVID might be a game changer. As Craig recounted to me, Jeff noted that predicting contagions was an uncertain line of work. Still, he was already making shifts within his own organizations and investments to brace for the impact of COVID. It was not surprising that Craig had sought out Skoll's advice. The Kilbergers have a long-standing practice of quickly identifying the smartest people in a space, hitting them up for wisdom, and reacting swiftly to what they believe is solid information. With Skoll's warning top of mind, the Killberger Brothers and the WE executive team decided the prudent course when it came to COVID was to hope for the best, but plan for the worst, even as WE was riding high and calamity seemed an unlikely possibility. As a former WE Charity board member, I look back on the success the organization was enjoying in early 2020 with a mix of pride and gloom. In February of that year, Mark sent staff an email that makes me want to both laugh and cry. I just wanted to be in touch to say a big thank you for helping us kick off 2020 in such an awesome way, he wrote. Although it's still early in the year, our teams have already accomplished so much. I'm really looking forward to what the next few months will hold. We was firing on all cylinders in Canada and around the world. No one saw what was coming, the end of WE Charity as we knew it. In those early months of 2020, staff were planning special events to mark the organization's silver anniversary. April 19th would be 25 years to the day that Craig asked his grade seven classmates to raise their hands if they wanted to join him in the fight to end child labor. Eleven did, marking the early beginnings of what eventually became We Charity. We were on the cusp of something truly amazing after 25 years of building and then proving this model, Craig said. We joked that it was the longest, hardest overnight success to scale globally. Meanwhile, teachers involved in WeSchool's programming across Canada were busy integrating new social and emotional learning curricula into lesson plans to support their students' well-being. While kids were out on March break, an escape from the classroom that would last far longer than anyone could have imagined, many teachers were reflecting on how they could use WE resources to keep students focused on taking action and being good citizens if virtual learning became the new reality. At the WE Global Learning Center, WE GLC, in the Moss Park area of downtown Toronto, young entrepreneurs were developing ideas for new social enterprises and getting coached on how to bring those ideas to fruition. The WE GLC, funded through targeted donations from Canadian philanthropists like Hartley Richardson and David Eisenstadt was WE Charity's global headquarters. The building, completed in 2017 and opened with great fanfare in a ceremony with former UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, helped revitalize a neighborhood and was a place of both refuge and renewal for many young people. Mark explained, that he and Craig had seen the GLC as finally offering a physical space rooted in technology that they had never had when they were pioneering their unique brand of social innovation as teenagers. The next generation, he told me, would have an easier time making change happen. At least that was the plan. That building was so much more than bricks and cement, he told me. To me, the value was in what it represented helping the next generation of young Canadians create their own nonprofit or social enterprise, their own version of We Charity, or whatever social purpose group they would dream up. I recall feeling an enormous sense of possibility when I donned a hard hat and dodge nails and exposed beams during a construction phase tour. I later marveled at the technology donated by companies like Microsoft and Siemens, which allowed students and educators around the world to connect and swap stories and ideas. I appreciated that every piece of the WeGLC, from the locally built furniture to the recording studio soundproofed, with recycled tires was socially thoughtful. Even the carpeting was made from reclaimed fishing nets that had once trawled the bottom of the ocean, doing considerable environmental damage. And I was thrilled by the infectious buzz from the hundreds of WE staff working under one roof on everything from school programming, WE schools, the organization's signature celebration events, WE days, Mental health initiatives, We Wellbeing, and international development efforts, We Villages. And of course, there was the vibrancy of all those visiting school kids filling the digital classrooms, Skype pods, and breakout rooms that took up the entire first floor. As part of its 25th anniversary celebrations, the charity intended to expand the We GLC. By using neighboring real estate already owned by the organization to create a broader campus for good, which would provide mentorship, free or discounted space, and an extensive suite of business services to youth led social enterprises and charities. Me To We, the social enterprise partner of We Charity, served as the inspiration for the campus for good. Me To We is a for-profit business that sells socially conscious products creating employment for at-risk people in WE Charity partner communities around the world. Each product sold includes a barcode that lets you see how your money is used and track the impact of your spending decisions. me to we also offers young people, families, and donor groups Trips to We Charities partner communities, so they can meet the people We supports, and better understand the organization's impact on the ground. Although the relationship between Me to We and We Charity, business and nonprofit operating side by side, became a source of many misperceptions, the creation of Me to We was a seismic event. For We Charity because it helped ensure access to a steady stream of financing that was not dependent on the whims of philanthropists and corporate partners. Me to We was required by its bylaws to contribute at least 50% of its profits to the charity. In most years, the figure was closer to 90%. Any remaining profits were reinvested in Me to We to advance its mission. In other words, 100% of the profits were either donated or invested to grow the social mission. In other words, 100% of the profits were either donated or invested to grow the social mission. Through this self-financing model, WE Charity was able to dramatically reduce its administrative costs and ensure that more donor dollars went to charitable pursuits. By 2020, the value of me to wes contributions to We Charity over a 12-year period was estimated at $24 million. Those funds were used to support We Charity's work and were generated through creation of Fair Trade Jobs for women in the charity's partner communities around the world. As part of its vision for the next 25 years, we wanted to help other charities and young people create their own enterprises with a mandate of fostering social good. Inspired by Toronto's MARS, a nonprofit that helps innovative science and tech companies get off the ground the organization hoped to build a Social Entrepreneur Center that would provide physical space to young changemakers, as well as skills building resources and financial support to early stage micro-social enterprises looking to bring new products or services to market. By March 2020, the building blocks of this dream were already in place. In September 2019, The Canadian government had committed $3 million over 24 months to the organization to support youth-led social enterprises in the early and growth stages of their development, particularly those from underserved communities and underrepresented groups. The goal was to foster the creation of 200 businesses focused on social good and help grow another 30 that were already in existence. To accomplish this, we built two unique programs. We incubate for people under 25, and we scale up for aspiring social entrepreneurs under 35. The goal of both programs was to ensure that young entrepreneurs were equipped with solid business plans and impact models so they could give back to their communities while also expanding globally and creating an underlying culture of social good. While these socially-minded ideas were percolating in Canada, we charities' development teams in countries such as Kenya, Tanzania, and Ecuador were busily implementing the charity's five-pillar model of sustainable development, education, clean water, health care, food security, an income opportunity. In January 2020, we had kicked off the new year with Craig hosting a group of guests in Kenya. There was always something to celebrate on visits to partner communities on the edge of the Maasai Mara Wildlife Reserve, whether it was the opening of a schoolhouse or the birth of a new child, at Baraka Hospital, a healthcare facility built by we. Guests visited the Charity's partner villages where they took part in traditional water walks, trudging a few kilometers from a muddy river with heavy jugs hoisted on their backs and strapped to their heads, a glimpse of life before We Charity established local clean water programs. Later, they bumped along the unpaved roads to the Baraka Hospital to hear personal stories from mothers awaiting inoculations for their babies, then was swarmed at the Kisaruni Girls Boarding High School by ambitious teens eager to share their dreams. This school was also where CNN did a live broadcast on March 11th as part of its reporting on MyFreedomDay, a student driven initiative to raise awareness of modern day slavery. During that broadcast, CNN shared the story of Faith Cherup from the small community of Selibek. Faith, who had eight brothers, six sisters, and no mother, convinced her father to let her complete her education instead of sending her off into an early marriage. She eventually graduated from Kisaruni and was the school's valedictorian. She went on to study tourism management at WE College, a post-secondary institution built by the charity in 2017. CNN's broadcast brought the story of WE Charity's work in Kenya to more than 384 million households across 200 countries. It seemed like everywhere we operated, there was excitement and hope in the air. No one since how much the world would change in the days, weeks, and months ahead. But in short order, all we days, everywhere, would be canceled. Me to we trips would be grounded. Schools in countries around the world would be closed. And most people's lives would be turned upside down. We Charity's 25th anniversary would be all but forgotten. The life's work of countless employees would be in ruins, and hundreds of thousands of children who benefited from the charity's efforts in Canada and developing countries around the world would have to go without. COVID takes flight. Prompted by Jeff Skold's advice, Craig and Mark directed both We Charity and Me to We to prepare for the possibility of a trip participant contracting COVID or the virus spreading rapidly through a partner community overseas. The charity established sanitation requirements for WE Country offices and facilities and began to hunt for a supplier of personal protective equipment. By mid-February, two task force groups had been formed at WE's headquarters in Toronto and both were meeting daily. The risk management team, composed of executives, country directors, and other key operational staff, were tracking events and preparing strategies and contingencies. And a stakeholder service team was tasked with keeping the organization's donors, educators, school groups, and trip participants abreast of developments. At the time, COVID seemed like a real but distant problem until it began spreading across Italy and appearing in numerous other European countries. By February, it had already jumped the English Channel to the United Kingdom and was moving, albeit relatively slowly. There were concerns about proceeding with We Day UK in early March, but after the National Health Service said live events were safe, the decision was made to go ahead. As the day approached, though, some members of the WE team felt a Damoclean sword hanging overhead. I had this feeling that something bad was coming around the corner, Mark told me. I'm not really a guy who relies on vibes. I like facts and data. But there was just this feeling. I can't describe it, but it was impossible to ignore. But I never thought WE Day UK would be our last. That year's event garnered attention because of its A-list attendees, including actor Idris Elba, race car driver Lewis Hamilton, the cast of Game of Thrones, and the wife and mother of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And because it was a stadium-sized gathering held while the scope and gravity of COVID was slowly becoming clear. Ahead of the event, ITV News, one of the largest broadcasters in the UK, filmed at 10 different schools in 10 different regions across England, interviewing teachers and students about the involvement in WE schools and what volunteer work they had done to earn their way to WE Day. The event marked the first time that the Canadian Prime Minister's daughter, Ella Grace, would take the stage. But the Trudeaus had a long history with WE. Margaret Trudeau, the prime minister's mother, is a professional public speaker who was a regular on the WE Day stage as an advocate for clean water and mental health. She was also paid an honorarium to speak at WE fundraising events, an inconsequential fact that eventually became rather consequential. His wife, Sophie Grégoire Trudeau, was an ambassador for WE Well-Being and hosted a podcast on mental health and wellness for the organization. Even before Trudeau was elected prime minister, he and his wife co-hosted WE Day Montreal in 2012, and his first public appearance after being sworn into office was at WE Day Ottawa in 2015. Suffice it to say that the Trudeaus liked WE and seemed to think highly of the organization and the Kilburgers. We had covered the costs for Grégoire Trudeau, Ella Grace, and Margaret Trudeau to travel to the UK, as it had for other speakers. The Prime Minister's wife also made other public appearances while she was there, including at the Canadian High Commission and an International Women's Day event. In a matter of days, her whereabouts and interactions would become the subject of international media scrutiny. Grégoire Trudeau returned to Canada on March 6, and soon after, she began to experience flu-like symptoms. She was tested for COVID on March 11, and the next day she was confirmed to be the 158th and most famous Canadian to have the virus the Prime Minister's office released a press statement that sparked media speculation and unleashed criticism of the charity. Even though Gregoire Trudeau had been back in Canada for several days before experiencing a fever, the statement implied that she had caught the virus at We Day. It read, Having recently returned from a speaking engagement in London, UK, the Prime Minister's wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, began exhibiting mild flu-like symptoms, including a low fever late last night. This statement put WE Day in the crosshairs of media outlets around the globe. Even though there were no reports of young people or teachers contracting COVID, and no WE staff, including those who had interacted with Gregor Trudeau, tested positive, many people quickly assumed that Wee Day was some kind of super-spreader event. The Daily Mail, The Guardian, and dozens of other UK and Canadian newspapers and magazines began calling and emailing Wee's public relations and UK teams asking for comment on Grégoire Trudeau. Who was she in contact with at the event? Did anyone else test positive? Wee's PR team was inundated the Canadian press took a decidedly alarmist tone, pondering who else had been tested and might be at risk. But what about their children, asked reporter Michael Freeman in an article on Macleans.ca. What about Trudeau's mother, who attended the conference with her? What about everyone who took a selfie with Sophie, who may pose a risk? A columnist for the Journal de Montréal, dedicated nearly 800 words to questioning Grégoire Trudeau's fitness as a mother. I'm sure you're very happy to know, wrote Sophie de that it was about this kind of new age gibberish that Mrs. Grégoire Trudeau risked her health, that of her daughter, her mother-in-law, her sister-in-law, and that of our prime minister. Four days later, there was another uptick in media coverage when Idris Elba also tested positive for the virus. Rumors began to swirl that Gregoire Trudeau had passed on COVID to others. The lifestyle and beauty website, The Kit, went so far as to track the deadly virus from Gregoire Trudeau to Lewis Hamilton, who had not contracted it at that time, to Prince Harry, who had been in contact with Hamilton on March 6, to the Queen, it just occurred to me that Harry was hanging out with the Queen while he was in the UK, Sarah Lang wrote on the site on March 18th. Is there any chance that he might have passed it on to his 93-year-old grandmother? On social media, internet trolls and journalists alike speculated that we had put thousands in harm's way. Chris Selly, a columnist for the National Post, who would later hop on the anti-WE media bandwagon, tweeted, On the bright side, maybe coronavirus will kill WE Day. In fact, coronavirus did kill WE Day. The potential threat posed by the pandemic had been top of mind for WE executives for two months. Throughout the first week and a half of March, the Risk Management Task Force closely watched how other major large-scale events, such as conferences and music festivals, were reacting to the growing crisis. WE Executives were also worried about staff members who had gone to the UK. All were told to stay home and get tested for COVID if symptoms emerged. The climate at WE, where there were so many people returning from international travel, became one of uneasiness and uncertainty. Dr. David Fissman, an epidemiologist from the University of Toronto, was hired to help the organization understand what it needed to do to respond to the medical needs of its communities around the world. He was also asked for guidance on how the organization's domestic programs would be impacted and when things might be expected to return to normal we could not have had a more qualified advisor. Dr. Fistman's research interests falls at the intersection of applied epidemiology, mathematical modeling, and applied health economics. He is focused on developing and applying methodological tools that allow physicians and public health experts to make the best possible decisions around communicable diseases he has a master's degree from the Harvard School of Public Health and was part of the Ontario COVID Science Advisory Table. Over the course of the pandemic, his advice has been sought by foreign governments, financial institutions like J.P. Morgan Chase and Farallon Capital Management, and organizations like the Ontario Teachers Federation and the Ontario Nurses Association. Dr. Fissman was in regular contact with We Charity to try to help the organization make prudent decisions. He had a simple warning, this is going to be bad and things will not get back to normal for a long time. Looking back on those early days of the pandemic, Fissman, an overworked but good-humored man who peppers scientific explanations with humanistic references to Franklin Roosevelt and Lao Tzu, told me that Craig kept drilling down on every detail in the hope of uncovering some prospect of better times. But Fissman, the bearer of bad news, explained that the pandemic would likely come in waves with government policy decisions influencing the trajectory more than the virus itself. It was, he acknowledged to me in an interview, a very tough card for WE to be dealt because so many of its activities would likely be shuttered for an indefinite period. The doom that Mark had felt just a few weeks earlier proved prescient and that feeling was building. Every part of WE, which was in the business of live events, school programs, international travel, and retail would be impacted by COVID starting with WE Day. Based on Fistman's advice, the WE executive team decided the organization needed to be proactive. On March 10th, all stakeholders, educators, vendors, donors, staffers were informed that the live WE Day events would be canceled for the spring 2020 season. When schools began closing across North America later that month, the full We Day 2020-21 season was terminated. In an email to partners and donors announcing the initial spring cancellation, Mark wrote, I know it will be heartbreaking for the hundreds of thousands of students, educators, speakers, and partners who participate every year. It was a heartbreaking decision for all of us at WE. He added that the safety and peace of mind of participants and their families and our staff is our highest priority. Similar emails were sent to students, educators, and speakers. The next day, March 11th, the World Health Organization officially declared COVID a global pandemic. Two days later, Canada issued an advisory recommending against travel abroad and called on all Canadians outside the country to come home. As travel warnings went into effect, WE went from worrying about the fallout of WE Day UK to grappling with how to repatriate more than 100 travelers from Kenya, Tanzania, and Ecuador. And what of the WE employees who lived and worked in other countries. So much was at stake, and the organization had to act quickly. The Mad Scramble to Safety Russ McLeod, then Executive Director of Me2We, was in his office for a weekly status check with Nora Griffiths, head of Me2We Trips, when she heard the ping of an incoming email and glanced at her laptop. The normally unflappable Nora, a former elite rower, who had competed around the world under immense pressure, turned to Russ, wide-eyed with alarm. I just got an alert that a global pandemic has been declared. Though shaken, Russ headed instantly for the office whiteboard. Okay, let's go through our strategy. The risk management team has been planning for the worst, mapping out different scenarios and establishing protocols to ensure that all travelers got home safely. All that planning would now be put to the test. In 2004, Russ had arrived for his first day at We Charity armed with a business degree and wearing a suit, which was a bit stiff for a crowd who had got their start protesting child labor and sex trafficking and collecting signatures on petitions. Russ quickly dispensed with the suit, and some days, even his shoes. To save money, he lived on the top floor of We Charity's first downtown headquarters in Toronto's Cabbage Town neighborhood, sleeping on a mattress on the floor. Russ was the guy you turned to in order to get things done. He pitched in wherever he was needed, writing grant proposals, schlepping boxes, and organizing promotional tours and book sales. He quickly became invaluable to the organization and moved up the ranks, eventually launching We Day, first in Toronto in 2007 and later across North America and in the U.K., He'd juggle We Day schedules, celebrity timetables, and trips on many continents. He was just the person you wanted in a crisis. March 11th was the beginning of what Russ described as a mad scramble to get We Charity and Me To We staff and trip participants back home from sometimes remote communities across the globe. He knew he had to move at lightning speed. Borders were closing, countries were enacting travel restrictions, and flights were being canceled by the minute. The window to repatriate people was closing fast. For many overseas employees, the decision to leave was one of the toughest of their lives. Robin Wizawadi, the head of Kenyan operations, is an American who had lived and worked in Kenya for over a decade. She'd learned Swahili through immersive living with a rural Maasai family, and had even published a book about her experiences called My Maasai Life. Kenya was her home, and she was based there with her husband and children. On March 14th, Mark arrived in the country to consult directly with Robin and other senior staffers on the pandemic response. In this whirlwind 24-hour stopover, He wanted to learn what he could about what was needed to get people out of the country and to prepare Baraka Hospital for an expected deluge of patients. Six days later, he called Robin to pass on a warning. International flights would likely be shut down in a matter of days. There was no time to waste. Robin called the rest of the expatriate staff to relay Mark's message. Then she called her husband. Mike, we gotta go. Robin was reluctant to leave the Kenya team behind. There was so much work to be done to stave off the spread of COVID in the community. A part of me felt like I was leaving them when they needed me most, she said. But a few months earlier, her father had passed away in the U.S. With the pandemic escalating, she decided that she wanted to be near her family and should go in case it soon became impossible to leave Kenya for months, if not years. 48 hours later, she boarded a flight to Michigan with her husband and kids. At the same time, Scott Baker, then serving as head of programs in Ecuador, and now the chief operations officer, for We Charity International Programs, was deciding whether to remain in the capital, Quito. Like Robin and Russ, he had worked with the organization for almost 20 years in a variety of roles. While he was volunteering at Mother Teresa's orphanages in Calcutta, another Canadian gave him a copy of Craig's first book, Free the Children. Scott read it, returned to Canada, and lived for a time in a tent in the backyard of the Kilberger family home while he took on responsibility for building and growing a youth volunteer leadership program for the Toronto Catholic District School Board. Before moving to Quito with his Ecuadorian wife and their two children to spearhead WE Charity's sustainable development programming in the Amazon, he did a long stint as executive director of the charity from 2010 to 2018. As Ecuador closed its borders on March 14, Scott scrambled to get trip participants out on the last scheduled commercial flights. COVID restrictions had caused turmoil in the country with civil unrest and looting. He realized that once those flights ended, he would likely have no chance to leave with his family until the pandemic was over. We're living day to day, he recalled. It was this crazy, uncertain world. Once he'd made arrangements for all staff and for participants to return home, he came to the difficult decision to leave as well. But by that point, the airport was closed and there were no commercial flights out. Scott's plight was one of several stories featured in a March 21st CTV news report on the travel challenges facing Canadians abroad. He says the news coverage helped him and his family secure space on one of the very first charter flights. But we left our house, furniture, car, and dog to make it out. I made inquiries about the dog, her name is Luna, and she was taken in by Scott's in-laws. Back in Toronto, Russ and other wee employees were filling the toll of trying to manage a coordinated exodus on a global scale. Red tape was shredded to ensure maximum efficiency. If staffers found a flight that could accommodate someone, they were instructed to grab it without going through the standard internal approvals. We didn't want to give up a seat on a plane because we would have to chase someone for approval to spend that amount, Nora recalled. Meanwhile, Mark and the travel team worked the phones for hours each day talking to airlines, Global Affairs Canada, and numerous foreign consulates and Canadian embassies as they tried to bring more people home. Despite the hurdles... All trip participants were repatriated in under a week. And by March 21st, just 10 days after the pandemic was declared, the last of the WE staff members had returned, except for one. In Udaipur, India, in the northwestern province of Rajasthan, Program Head Lloyd Hanneman was still working to close the office, secure all WE properties, and ensure that the needs of national staff were addressed. Originally from Guyana, with degrees in conflict studies and political science, Lloyd had worked for UNICEF and Global Affairs Canada before turning up at WE's Toronto headquarters one day to pack school and health kits to ship to children overseas. He quickly became a key team member and went on to lead the organization's international development work around the globe. Before moving to India, he had lived and worked for We Charity in Sierra Leone and Sri Lanka. What I thought would be a few hours of volunteering turned into a 20-year career, he said. Like Robin and Scott, Lloyd was reluctant to leave the country he had come to think of as home. He also didn't want to leave his team members, who were supporting dozens of projects and thousands of impoverished community members. Mark was worried time was running out, and he phoned to urge haste, but it was too late. On March 24th, the Indian government locked down the entire country. All forms of transportation were halted, and people were told not to leave their homes except to get food or seek medical attention. The WE Charity team had to make multiple calls to Global Affairs Canada in Ottawa and send repeated electronic requests through a web portal set up by the Canadian Consulate in India before they were able to get Lloyd a seat on a government flight out of the country. With the airport in Udaipur shuttered and no interregional flights allowed, he had to get special permission from Indian authorities to break the lockdown and make the 11-hour drive to Delhi to catch his plane. As March drew to a close, most Canadian journalists, politicians, and pundits were suggesting that the pandemic would have a relatively small impact on daily life, with everything returning to normal as soon as the summer or fall of 2020 but the information coming into WE told an entirely different story. Sad Goodbyes Mark and Craig continued to get advice and data on the short- and long-term consequences of the pandemic from Dr. Fistman and others. It was all bad news. For example, a briefing from the Wellcome Trust the world's largest non-governmental funding source for health research predicted significant and long-lasting societal changes such as shuttered schools and supply chain disruptions. Its experts also foresaw the high death toll that became a reality around the world. Similarly, Chris Hansen of Valiant Capital Management, a longtime We Charity donor, told leadership that he expected the financial impact of COVID to be heavy and advised the charity to prepare for what was coming. His fund would famously short key industries such as travel and tourism, accurately predicting the market consequences of the pandemic. Bill Thomas, the global chairman of KPMG International, called to say that based on what his company was seeing in China, He thought COVID could ultimately make the 2008 Great Recession look like a picnic. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was projecting that millions of lives would be lost in developing countries like India and parts of Africa. One after another, some of the smartest people around the globe, experts in these areas, were telling us that we needed to prepare for the worst-case scenario, Mark recalled. There were some industry leaders who were slightly more optimistic, but the information we were getting was that we needed to act and act quickly. It became clear that COVID would be around for a long time, even if a vaccine was developed at a record pace. And the logistics of distributing a vaccine to billions of people in countries across the globe were staggering. The last regions to receive it would likely be rural areas of Africa and the Amazon basin, the very places where WE was most active. It would be irresponsible to expose local communities in these high-risk areas to international volunteers and guests. The most optimistic estimate suggested it would be two years before me to WE was able to resume offering travel experiences. Two years. Retail sales for the Me To We Artisans line of handcrafted accessories would also evaporate as malls and stores shut down. With no retail and no trips, We Charity, which relied on donations from Me To We to operate, would struggle. The forecast was the same for We Days. It became apparent that even in the best case scenario, students and teachers would be reluctant to crowd into large arenas well into 2021 and beyond. And even if schools themselves reopen, the pandemic would almost certainly preclude motivational speakers and those who delivered We Schools programs from visiting classrooms. What then should be done about the teams that produced these programs? One bright light was that WE Day's and WE School's resources could be moved to an online format. But that would require nowhere near the previous level of staffing. An online broadcast is very different from a live event because the latter requires actual bodies to build stages, operate concourse booths, seat attendees, manage talent, and much more. At the same time, We Charity was thinking about shifting into disaster relief mode and diverting time and resources to securing much-needed medical supplies, including PPE, for vulnerable partner communities. We had already learned from its experience in the Haiti earthquake of 2010 that the cost of shipping medical supplies abroad were significant. Similarly, in 2014, The organization had helped fight the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, delivering medical supplies through partner organizations on the ground, particularly in Sierra Leone, where we maintain an active presence for two decades. That relief effort had a ripple effect on the financial feasibility of other operations, and the experience taught the charity some difficult lessons. Ebola had a pretty significant impact, Russ explained, we learned the hard way to get ahead of crises. Since no one had ever faced a pandemic of a scale that the experts were predicting with COVID, it was impossible to know what expenditures would be necessary in the long term. But WE charities' early estimates were that a minimum of $10 million would be needed to supply medical aid and combat food insecurity in communities where WE was the most active nonprofit. In Kenya, for example, a field hospital was needed. This was the best way to prevent an ailing patient from entering Baraka Hospital and infecting everyone inside. Robin Wizawati was already working on a plan to repurpose the buildings of Wee College, which had been sitting empty ever since the pandemic had shut down schools. No one liked the idea of laying off team members who had given so much of themselves to we. But there were difficult choices to be made. Could the organization really continue to carry hundreds of people whose programs were on indefinite hold? Or was the prudent course to reallocate funds to support medical shipments, health care, and food security in vulnerable communities around the world? Ultimately, the path was clear. The priority had to be communities overseas. The writing was on the wall. We was going to have to slim down very quickly. And so layoffs, which would be emotionally devastating for the organization, began the week of March 16th. We Charity and me to we announced to staff in a video conference town hall that they were downsizing. Each departing staff member received a minimum of 12 weeks in severance pay, and all those affected were contacted personally by their direct managers, no impersonal email terminations. It was an agonizing process for those making the calls and those receiving them. When I talked to current and former staff members who were part of this sad moment The words that came up most frequently were pain and loss. A consistent theme was that working for we was more than just a job. Most employees felt that they were part of something bigger. That's why almost 100 people had worked at the organization for a decade or longer. And some of these people were among those slated to be let go. Russ said it was gut-wrenching. I couldn't help shedding many tears. Dalal Alwahide, Executive Director of WE Charity, said the experience was a tragic coda to her 18 years at the organization. She started as an intern after graduating from university and rose through the ranks, eventually running the organization's WE Day programs for many years. Like most staff, she had toiled across late nights and weekends on a modest salary, putting life plans on hold to advance the mission of the organization. Employees often started at WE when they were young, right out of college, and the organization purposely hired people with passion, even if they lacked practical experience. Reflecting on the sadness of making the difficult decision to let old friends go, the law recalled, I was directly involved in shaping and growing the organization alongside passionate and dedicated team members. It was our dream to make it cool for kids to care about social issues and to contribute to positive change. Having to say goodbye made me realize just how much I cared for these people who had shared my dreams and mission. She noted that WE's focus was on doing this in an honorable way, in the best way we knew how. But behind the administrative process was a real sense of tragedy. Among the people let go was Vicki alensi who came to WE after decades working in media, marketing, and communications. She thought she'd found her perfect fit, a way of connecting her professional expertise with her personal passion. But she was laid off just one month after she started. I didn't feel any ill will, she noted. I've been around business and understand why that decision had to be made. That said, she was personally upset. I felt numbness then a sadness about the fact that I thought I'd found my dream job after 30 years. Imagine finally finding your dream job and then losing it. Unfortunately, even these initial cuts did not prove sufficient. As March dragged on, it became increasingly clear that the impact of COVID would be heavier than anticipated. As fears of a pandemic recession grew, it was also unclear what economic uncertainty might mean for donor funding commitments. The WE executive team saw no option but to expand the layoffs. Additional staff were let go the week of March 23rd, with the same termination package as those who had been laid off in the first round. Of the permanent full-time staff who remained, Many were switched to short-term renewable contracts, some at reduced pay. To try to preserve jobs and funds for emergency programs, WE senior management took a 20% cut, while the executive team cut their own salaries by a quarter. Mark's and Craig salaries paid by me to WE, not WE charity, were cut in half. Dan Kuzmicki, head of enterprise services, laid off more than half of his team in March. From his vantage point at the WE GLC, where he was helping the remaining staff members transition to at-home work, he had a front-row seat to the painful decisions the founders and executive team were making. Our executive team is just weeping in the hallways and sitting around in a room for 24 hours at a time. They were people at the absolute worst time in their lives, recalled Dan. Although it was a distressing period, he appreciated the personal care and thought that went into the process. A lot of my friends have been laid off over the years, and their experience was just shockingly abrupt, like this location is now closed and sorry for the inconvenience. In contrast... Wee's leadership team had one-on-one calls with each person being let go. Dan couldn't envision what was to come. No one could. But he felt confident that we'd make it through to the other side somehow. By the end of March, total staffing levels in North America and the U.K. had been reduced from 568 to 320, across both We Charity and Meet-A-We. With these painful cuts, the internal upheaval appeared to be subsiding. On March 27th, Mark held an emotional town hall with remaining staff. To help employees cope with the pandemic and the emotional toll of the layoffs, he announced an increase in holidays and more scheduling flexibility. Mark then spoke about how the organization's local and global programs were more important than ever. As the most vulnerable are always hit the hardest in times of crisis, he thanked the hundreds of remaining team members for persevering through the past few difficult weeks and said that the organization was well-positioned to face the pandemic and deliver on its mission to help children. But mostly, he tried to reassure Please allow me to separately put your minds at ease about the financial solvency of the organization, he said. We acted quickly, and as a result, we will be okay. We will be okay. When I later heard Mark's message, I fervently hoped he was right. He was, of course, very wrong, but not because of COVID. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.